Father, thank you. Thank you that you have spoken to us. Thank you that you have not left us wondering who you are, what your character is, what you desire of us, and where you are leading us. Thank you that you have revealed truth to us through your word, through the word of God that was made flesh in Jesus Christ, and then through the word that was recorded down in the Bible for us to know you. God, I pray now as we study your word that this would be effective and fruitful in our life, that we would leave here as changed people, having encountered your word spoken to us, and that it would accomplish more than we could ask or imagine. God, even right now, anything I've prepared to say that is not of you, I pray that you clear that away. Make me forget it. But anything that's of you that is bringing clarity to your word, I pray that it sticks and that it brings about a transformation in us as a church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an image in the Bible that's always stuck out to me. It's kind of been an image for me um, of the kind of faith that I want to have. It comes from Psalm 1. Psalm 1 reads this way, right in the middle of the psalm. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor, sits in the way, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now here's the image. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. I have this image when I read that, and I've always come back to that verse, and I've memorized it, and I repeat it to myself regularly. I see this image of this tree beside a riverbank, and it's this beautiful, gushing riverbank, and the water is flowing down, and the roots of this tree are just dug down deep into the beautiful, life-giving waters of that river. When I picture it in my mind, I see this grassy plain leading up to a river, and the roots of this tree are so big that they're literally busting out of the riverbank down into the water's edge, and it's just absorbing all the goodness of that river. And what's happening to the tree is that it's just beautiful. It's, it's overflowing with greenery, and there's fruit and the fruit is good to eat, and it's, it's savory, and, and everyone is coming to find shade within this tree. That's the picture of the Christian life. That's what it looks like to have a relationship with God. We dig down deep into the river that is God and His Word, and our roots, as they dig deeper into the reality of God, as He's revealed Himself, and as He speaks to us, we soak up all the nutrients of God, and something beautiful gets formed in us. I want that. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? How would you describe your relationship with God? Can you say that you are like that tree planted by the riverbank? Soaking up the richness and the goodness of him who knows you and loves you fully? Is your soul satisfied in God? Has Jesus captured your heart and your imagination? Jesus told us that a tree is known by its fruit. Healthy trees produce healthy fruit. Unhealthy trees produce unhealthy fruit. The fruit of our lives reveal where our roots are dug in. We're studying this book of Galatians, and the book of Galatians has been this story on repeat for us. We've come over and over again to the main message, the main theme, if you will, of the entire book. The reason Paul, the writer of Galatians, wrote this book, 
Originally, the book of Galatians, these few chapters that are about two pages in your Bible, were a handwritten letter that Pastor Paul wrote to a church that he had planted, but he had since moved away, and he wrote back to remind them of the core convictions of the Christian faith, the core convictions that say that you cannot earn favor with God. No matter what you do, no matter how much work you put into it, none of your work, none of your religious duty, no amount of praying, no amount of coming to church, no amount of serving, no amount of helping, nothing in terms of adding up spiritual power to your resume can earn you one cent with God. That is unearnable from God. We're too depraved. We're too far into sin. Rather, God's love, God's favor has been earned for us on our behalf from Jesus Christ. When he lived a perfect life, when he died on the cross in our place, we never earn God's love. Rather, we receive God's love, and then we work, and our faith and what we do with our faith, the way we love others, flows out of a posture of already being fully known and fully loved. We don't earn God's love. We receive it. Today, Paul is kind of taking us on a transition. He spent four, if not five chapters kind of plowing this truth, this conviction into us that we can't earn God's love. And now he wants to talk about our faith and the daily way we live our life. He wants to push us to say, now that you've already had this earned for you on your behalf, here's what it looks like to to discipline yourself and to pursue the Christian faith. Spiritual growth does not just happen automatically. There is work to do, not to earn it, but to continue to grow in your faith. I think his idea here is this, true spiritual depth takes time and effort. True spiritual depth. To become that tree that is planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in due season, that takes time and effort. We must anchor ourselves daily in the grace of Jesus Christ. The first thing we see in this passage, and we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. The first thing we see in this passage is that there is a war going on for the attention of your soul. There is a war going on for the attention of your soul. And there are two competing forces that want lordship over your attention. They want lordship over your time, over your calendar, over your schedule, over your relationships. These two forces are vying for your attention. Paul calls them the flesh and the spirit. Verses 16 to 18. But I say, says Paul, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, Paul brings up this idea of the Spirit, and it's important that we pause and make sure we really know what he's talking about The world we live in today is what I would call a pluralistic society. Religion has retreated into the private sector, and so everyone has a choice of what their religion's going to be. We don't necessarily bring that out into the public sphere with us. And because of that, the highest ideal in our modern society is that whatever you believe is good, whatever sense of religion you have, so long as it's private, is a good thing, and it's all generally the same. And if we bring that concept with us into reading Paul's passage, then we fundamentally misunderstand what he means when he refers to the Spirit. The Spirit for Paul is not just a religious idea. It's not just an emotion or a concept of religion or a a general goodness that comes about in a person's life by following a religious set of practices. 
When Paul refers to the Spirit, he's talking about the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives. Literally, the person of God moves into your life the moment you receive Jesus Christ by faith. Once you make Jesus your Lord, that Lord Jesus then invades you and begins transforming you from the inside out. And the Holy Spirit has one major function. He serves as a floodlight, pointing your entire life towards Jesus so that every interaction you have, every engagement you participate in, every place you go, every moment you're awake, the Holy Spirit is pouring a floodlight on Jesus to help you see your story, this moment in light of the larger story of what Christ has done. The Holy Spirit is not just God's way of trying to make you a better person. It's God's presence leading you towards the one that you have made Lord of your life. Your first love, Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's responsibility. And Paul says the moment that the Holy Spirit gets implanted in you, a new journey begins in your life. This is a brand new journey. You don't start this journey until you receive Jesus. And though we progress in the Spirit and we become more spiritually mature, there is another force that's vying for our attention. It's called the flesh. The flesh is our old way of life. It's our old, sinful, rebellious tendencies that still linger and vie for our attention. Verse 17 is a very interesting verse here. It says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, get this, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Any of you know that story? <clears throat> Any of you know that feeling that <clears throat> there's something you desire to do? There's this spirit-filled conviction about some change in your life, some new area of your life, some discipline in the Christian faith you want to get after. And you want to do it, and that desire is, is the spirit working inside of you. That means that Jesus has taken up residence in your life. That, that desire is good. But any of you know that story that sometimes you just can't bring yourself to do the very thing you want to do? It's like there's a war going on and you don't understand yourself and you question, why do I keep falling to this same bad behavior? Why do I keep going about this same sin when I know somewhere deep inside I want something more? You know, I see this in my life all the time. I, I, I've, I think I've shared this with you and hopefully I share this with you because I want you to feel better about yourself, <laughs> frankly. If you're a parent in this room, I think kids bring out the worst of us sometimes. I love my kids dearly, but who said amen? Was it my wife? No? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to call you out. She would never say that. <clears throat> Sometimes kids bring out the worst of us. We love our kids, but I'll tell you what, by the end of the day, I lose my patience. And I know, I, I, I know what I want to do when I tuck them in. I want to take my time. I want to just feel them. I want to put my arm around their little bodies and feel their, their ribs in between my hand. I, I know that's, that's when I'm being patient with them. That's when I'm present with them and I can just feel them and I, I recognize the special moment that every day is. But so often, I just want, I want the chore over. I'm impatient. I want to get upstairs. I want to have time with my wife to debrief the day without... Little kids chattering and taking up every moment I'm trying to talk. And so I rush through it and I'm not present. And I tell myself, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person. I want to be patient. I pray about this. And then time and time again, I do the very thing I don't want to do. My flesh gets the best of me. Where 
does the flesh gain victory over your regular life? Is it a habit? Is it a way of speaking to others, a way of seeking self-promotion? Is it an anger issue? Is it a control issue? Is it a consuming fear that you just can't shake? These things are real. And, and, and what's interesting about the Christian faith is that the Christian faith recognizes these as real. Here's what I mean by this. The Christian faith does not pretend that the moment you receive Jesus, life is just hippity-skippity, all good all the time. I, I just made that word up. <laughs> hippity-skippity. Life is just going to be perfect, and you're never going to have these issues, and you're never going to have flaws and weaknesses that come out. That's not the story of Christianity. It's the story of a lot of other religions that try to tell you you should have a veneer and a goodness on the outside, at least the way you present yourself. You should be good at times. Christianity is not stoicism that just has this neutral face in the midst of life's sufferings and hardships. Christianity weeps when we need to weep. Remember Jesus, how he wept over the city of Jerusalem? Remember how he felt that angst when he saw the sin and the brokenness of his people? And he engaged and he felt something with it. Christianity is not stoicism. We don't just have this neat and tidy face on the outside of us. And Christianity is not reclusive either. Christians are not called to hide themselves in monasteries tucked away, unhindered from the reality of the world. Rather, Christians are called to be citizens of a different kingdom and yet living here. Here's what that means. You're going to have a lot of hardship, a lot of emotion, a lot of pain because real life is hard. And the flesh is present. And the war is on for your soul and for your attention. And the war that the flesh wants is to take your attention off your first love. Constantly, your old self is going to be saying, don't look to Jesus. Tackle this one by yourself. You can overcome it without Jesus. Just get a little more discipline. Just read this book. Just go to this seminar. You don't need Jesus for this. The flesh will always be popping up telling you you can overcome something in your life without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. See, a Christian is not different from everyone else because we don't experience the weaknesses of the flesh. No. A Christian is different from everyone else because we have an actual way to overcome them, not by behavior modification, but by a spirit that actually transforms the human heart. See, this is how God works. He, he's, he's less interested in the outward behavior if the inward heart hasn't changed first because he knows that behavior modification will only last so long. It's only when the heart changes that, that way, that's when lasting victory takes place. And look at verse 16, what he says. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. That's an imperative command, to walk. In other words, there's a choice you have as a Christian, to either walk by the Spirit that is indwelling you or to not walk by the Spirit that's indwelling you. And Paul, as a good pastor, is looking to this church saying, hey guys, you need to choose to walk in the Spirit. It does not happen automatically. This is not something that you just place your faith in Jesus and then for the rest of your life you're just automatically walking in the fullness of what is reality for you. You've got to make this choice. You've got to form habits in yourself. See, all through this book of Galatians, we've been saying that you can't earn grace. That is true. You can never earn grace by work. Grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to putting in hard work into forming your Christian life, into making sure that your roots are digging down into that riverbank that is Jesus. A spiritually mature life in Christ does not happen on accident. 
It doesn't happen by just coming to church on Sunday. It doesn't happen by just going to small group through the week. We've got to actually be forming this relationship with Jesus where we know him, where we're able to hear him. Christians who have been Christians for a long time will tell you that when they first put their faith in Jesus, sometimes it was very bizarre to come to church because people around them would be telling that they keep hearing the whispers of God in their ear. I heard God tell me this. I heard God tell me this. And I remember being a new Christian and being like, man, how do you hear God? (laughs) Is there a voice? Like, does he like move your hand to go talk to this person? But the mature Christian who has put in years of work, of building habits, of putting structures in their life, of walking in the Spirit, begins to learn their Lord's voice and how He speaks. They begin this sweet relationship. You can't tape it on. You can't paste on fruit onto a tree and think you got a healthy tree. you got to actually dig the roots down. You got to put some work into this thing. We partner with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 says, be led by the Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit. In other words, it's possible to not be being led by the Spirit as a Christian. It's possible to be being led by the flesh. But if you are led by the Spirit, you'll see fruit coming out of your life. Being led by the Spirit is this image of a divine dance that's taking place. Where Jesus is leading you and you understand his touch, you understand his feel, you understand where he's moving and how he's moving and what he's asking you to do. I remember years ago for Christmas, I bought my wife dancing lessons. Uh, And we went to this class and it was phenomenal. One of the best Christmas gifts I think we've ever had just because we've had so many chances to use our dancing lessons. And I'm a bad dancer, but I got a great dancer for a wife. And so this at least allowed me to be on the dance floor with her. But I remember after the first week, we had learned a couple moves, and we were kind of trying to figure out this dancing thing. And then the instructor in the second week said, okay, you got the basic moves down. Now here's what we're going to do. We're all going to mix up our partners that we're dancing with, and we want you to dance with somebody else. Okay, this was a bizarre experience for me. So I, I turned to this other woman who's in the room, and I have to dance with this other woman. And it's... I totally don't want to be doing this. I feel so bad for this woman because I'm sure my face was just showing that I was feeling on the inside, <laughs> and, and there was no harmony between us. We were moving, we were moving, but we were not dancing. We were moving, we were doing something, but there was no harmony and there was no dancing taking place between me and that person. Here's the point. God has given you the Holy Spirit, and you need to train yourself, just as Sarah and I had to learn how to dance together. And once we began to learn how to dance together, then we began to learn how we would lead across the room and when certain things would happen. If we don't take the time to learn how to be in step with the Spirit and to sense His guiding, we'll always be moving but never dancing. We'll always be going about religious motion and doing the things of Christianity without producing anything beautiful. There'll be no real transformation. The whole purpose of the thing is to have this incredible life where fruit is blossoming from your life and is changing you and others around you. We might be moving, but we won't be dancing. There are others who are vying for our companionship, and the flesh is always trying to take your eyes off your first love. We've got to constantly be digging in. Verse 19 through 21, Paul puts together this short list of evidence that the flesh is winning the tension for your souls. 
verse 19 through 21, he, he basically says, here's a list of things that if these things are beginning to be true of you in some way, watch out because your attention has been taken off of the Holy Spirit and it's been placed on the flesh and you're trying to overcome problems in your life by your own effort and your own strength that rather than by the Spirit that's been indwelt in you. And what's interesting, at the end of this list, he has this extra thing he adds on. He says, and things like these, meaning this is not a comprehensive list. This is just Paul giving a quick snapshot. Here's some evidences of the flesh in your life. Verses 19 to 21. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when I read this list, I get a very uneasy feeling about it. And if you didn't get an uneasy feeling about it, I don't think you read the list properly. Here's, here's why I get an uneasy feeling. In the same list, in no particular order, this isn't a prioritized list of like really bad to like not so bad. In the same list, Paul includes right by each other sorcery with jealousy. Ew. Right? Sorcery, witchcraft, and worshiping the devil with jealousy. Ugh, that doesn't make me feel too good. Then he, he, he side-by-sides drunkenness and orgies, which that term orgies is not so much a sexual thing as it is literally a drunken party. That's the idea there. Is this, this full debauchery of just over-embellishing in drinking. Drunkenness and orgies next to dissensions and divisions and having a divisive spirit. See, Paul's not interested in any of us saying, I go to church, so that means I'm good. <laughs> Paul's not interested in any of us saying, oh, I don't practice witchcraft, so I'm good. I'm, I've, I've, I've got this transformation thing down. Every one of us have work of the flesh that we need victory over, that we need to look back to Jesus Christ, go back to our first love to gain victory over the works of the flesh that are present in our life. And what's the root of each of the items in this list is that every one of them has this one thing in common. The actions themselves are rooted in a heart that is vying for power and control. They're power grabs. That's what these are. Every one of these, if you look at them, it's rooted in a person whose heart and motivation is, I want more power for myself. That sounds like the flesh, doesn't it? It sounds like ego, pride, selfish ambition. Every one of these actions is what happens when a person is not confident in who they are and is trying to fill that up by actions. Let's go through them. Sexual immorality. That word is porneia. If it sounds familiar, it's because that's where our word pornography comes from. Sex outside of marriage is always a power play. It's always a power play. Here's why. Because in sex outside of marriage, you get all the benefits of sexuality without any of the commitments. Here's what that means. You can leave at any time. <laughs> you don't have to commit to this person. You never signed a covenant. You never committed to this person's well-being through thick and thin. You never made an agreement with God that you wouldn't leave this person when it gets hard. Therefore, you have the freedom to leave anytime you want. There's no real godliness in this relationship. It's, it's just the benefit and the power grab of wanting sex for yourself without the commitment of sacrificing for the other person. It's a power play. Sorcery. 
Sorcery is literally one of the fastest growing religions in the U.S. Isn't that sad? Witchcraft. We call it Wicca. There's many other names to it as well. Here's what sorcery is. It's when you go to spiritual groups and religions and they teach you how to bypass Jesus and try to have spiritual power over somebody else by saying chants and doing group exercises together. That you can have spiritual power over somebody. See, that's a power grab. It's saying, I'm not confident in who I am. How can I get power over somebody? Mm -hmm. Sorcery. I think I'll do that. Fastest growing religion. Drunkenness. If ever there was a power play, it's drunkenness. Here's what alcohol says. You drink this magic potion and all your insecurities will go away. You're not a popular person. You'll be the most popular person in the room. Girls don't like you. Every girl will think you're hilarious. Just drink up. Drink up as much as you can. You can have all the power for one night that you ever wanted. It's a power play. It's a person who's not confident in themselves, wondering if anyone could really truly love them. There's a hole inside of their belly wondering if anyone could love them fully, and they're not confident about it, so they reach out to alcohol to try to fill up things of the flesh in their own soul to fill up that absence that lives with inside of them. It's a power play. Drink this, and you can be someone that you're not. How about division? Ooh. If ever there was a time that brings out a divisive spirit, it's Thanksgiving and Christmas when we go home to the dinner tables and all of a sudden we're getting in conversations with Aunt Sally about politics and religion and we realize just how deep our divisive spirit goes. Divisions. See, divisions, when you just have to win an argument, when you're, when you're, when you're more happy to win an argument than you are to win the person. When, when you have to be right, when you have to get the last word, when you just keep talking over someone and you don't care about that person, you don't care about their story, their background, why they think that way, maybe they have something to teach you. Maybe they're right and you're wrong. When all you want to do is have a spirit of division, that's a power play. It's saying, man, I don't want to hear you. I just want to beat you. I just want to make sure you know I'm smarter than you. And that's a power play. It's rooted in the flesh. Everything on this list, we could go one by one through them, promises you power and freedom, yet leaves you totally empty. Every one gives you a hangover. It promises you that you're going to be full, that you're going to have happiness, you're going to have success, and then it leaves you miserable on the other side when you realize there's still a hole inside of you. You ever won an argument and gone home and said, I wish I would have handled that one differently? Maybe you did that over Thanksgiving. Maybe there's relationships you need to go back and mend because you were working out of the flesh and you won the argument but you lost the person. Here's the problem with the flesh. The reason people behave this way is because they're unsure of themselves. There's an absence in the heart. The works of the flesh are power plays that are really efforts and attempts to fill the insecurity that dwells within you that says that somewhere deep down inside you're not good enough, you've got to prove yourself. When we follow religion that says, here's the law, so live up to it. Here's how you earn approval with God. We will always become wildly insecure people because we'll always be wondering if we've done enough. That's why Paul says we're not under the law if we're led by the Spirit. But you know what the big problem for us is? The problem is not that we have these works of the flesh that are true of us. I've already admitted to you that it's in my life. It will be till the day I die. There will be areas of my life where I'm constantly trying to overcome, constantly trying to dig my roots into Jesus and, and let the Spirit overcome the works of the flesh, not, not my own behavior modification, 
My problem is not that that's true of us. My problem is that for many of you, if we wouldn't have stopped to read this list with any time and patience, we would have read over it and just assumed it wasn't us. We would have been completely apathetic to the entire list and gone on with our day pretending that this wasn't us and we were all good. The problem with the church is that we've stopped recognizing sin and we've stopped desiring passionately Jesus' transformation in our life. We come in and we go through all the motions over and over and over and over and over again and there's no real transformation because we've never stopped to say, my divisive spirit is a problem. It's hindering real fruit in my life, but I've been given full victory in Christ. I need to go back to my first love. My dissenting spirit, my sexual immorality, it's not good that it just stays regular in my life. I desire deeply to change that. My problem is not that it's present. My problem is that we've grown apathetic to it. We don't stir one another on to good works. We don't look at each other and say, that's not good. Man, Jesus bought you with a price and there's so much more than to stay constantly living in half-hearted, halfway Christianity. When you turn from the ways of the flesh and place your faith in Jesus, absence turns to abundance. Absence turns to abundance. See, all of those things are rooted in a place that says, I don't know who I am. I'm insecure. I wonder if God could love me or anyone else could love me. But absence turns to abundance in Christ. When you trust in Christ, the fullness of God invades you. And it says, that God says, I know you. I know your weaknesses. I know your flesh. I know your problems. I know your immorality. I know your divisive spirit. I know your sorcery. I know all your background. I know every sin you're going to commit. And here's the deal. I love you through it fully. I'm giving my life for you. I'm shedding my blood on the cross for you. It's all paid for. It's all done away with. This is my love for you in full. The gospel says that you can't earn one drop of God's love, but Jesus shed all his blood to earn it on your behalf. And here's what that means, that despite our brokenness, there is a God who loves us fully. No matter what anyone says about you, God's love always remains. No matter how weak you think you are, God, when he looks at you, there's an abundance of love poured out in you. You are not depleted at all in God's love, only through Jesus. No other religion offers you this. Every other religion says, you got to keep earning. Don't fall behind. Jesus says, I love you fully. And the root decision-making function in our heart now performs not from a posture of trying to fill a void to gain power, but from an overflow, an abundance that pours itself out in self-sacrifice to others. Look with me at Galatians 5, 22 to 26. It says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul gives us a new list. And notice it has nothing to do with the actions because the Spirit is less concerned about the actions unless the heart is first transformed. Notice how he says the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit as if each of these are individual things that may or may not grow. This is the whole picture. This is what happens to a life that is digging its roots down into Jesus. All of this grows together as one in a person's life. It's constantly increasing in your life. 
The first one on the list is love. That's the Greek word agape. Agape love. This is not love like the world tells you love. This is not brotherly love or romantic love. This is the self-sacrificial love of the God of the Bible. This is the love that was demonstrated in Jesus when he took the form of a servant and washed his disciples' feet. You want to know if the fruit of the Spirit is growing in you? Ask, what is your servant heart like? Are you reflecting Jesus in the way you take the dirtiest jobs to love on people that might be lesser than you in regards to maybe your position that you've earned in this life? Are you loving people sacrificially, agape love that allowed Jesus to hang on a cross for rebels like you and me, for misfits like us, for self-centered, lustful, power-grabbing, egocentric, divisive people like us? See, when you know love, that love, When you know that God loves you that way, no matter your lot in life, you can sing with arms high in the air, I'm a child of God. It's well with my soul. It's well with my soul. Joy, second one on the list. Joy like Jesus, who used to sneak away from the crowds. He had all the ability to constantly be in the crowds, but he used to sneak away to just go be present with the Father. He just wanted that alone time with God because with his joy, he said, it's my delight to be in the Father's will. Joy like Jesus, who despite his circumstances, always found reason to sing. You know that? With Jesus on his last night, it says that after they broke bread, he turned to his disciples when he was about to be led to the crucifixion and he turned and he sang a hymn. He opened up the book of songs and he sang his heart out to the God that loved him, that he knew perfectly. That kind of joy. That's the fruit of the Spirit. When your roots are digging deep in, you can't contain singing. Isn't that cool? You can't contain wanting to bust out in song to the God that loves you enough to die for you on a cross. See, this type of joy is only possible for those whose anchor is sure, who are confident in what has happened to them who knows that the other person that awaits them on the other side of this life, no matter what happens in life, you say, it is well with my soul, and that joy lives inside of you. Peace. Peace is the next one on the list. Peace, like Jesus, who in the midst of the storm, when all the disciples were frantic, going a million miles an hour, trying to make sure their boat didn't drown, he was sleeping. (laughs) He was resting in the Father's precious love. What a lesson for us when we feel frantic about the experiences of our day-to-day life. Peace like Jesus, who when he was mocked and spit upon, didn't spit back, didn't mock back, though he had every right to do so. They were lying against him, but he didn't have to have the final word. He knew who he was. He didn't have to win the argument. He let him spit. He let him mock. He was confident. He had an internal peace that surpassed the circumstance of others belittling him. This is gospel confidence. This is gospel abundance. This is the gospel saying, no matter my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Patience. Patience like Jesus who lingered with people. You ever read the life of Jesus, how he just lingered with people? With all the broken people, all the misfits of society, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, all the people that all the religious people said, don't come in my home, don't come near me, you're unclean. Jesus went to their house and he went to their parties. And he hung out long enough to draw a crowd of people putting their noses up against the windows to look in and say, Jesus is still there? What's he doing with them? He was patient with people when they didn't get it. 
He was patient with Peter when Peter kept putting his foot in his mouth and messing up. See, this kind of patience is for people who, who, who look different and act different, who sin different, who talk different. It's all rooted in an abiding sense of God's love for you. This is a patience that can only come from the one who knows you and who helped you when you were in your helpless estate. When we couldn't help ourselves, when we were broken, he had patience with us to be with us through all that brokenness. That's the patience that comes out of you. Are your roots dug into that person? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Bible says against these things, there is no such law. There is no law. There is just the person of Jesus forming this in your life. No religion can form this in you. The world cannot offer it to you. If the fruit is lacking in your life, the only solution is to return to your first love. You've got to dig your roots and put in the work of digging your roots into Jesus Christ and allowing who he is to flow through your life. Verse 25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. C.S. Lewis once wrote about the Christian faith and he described the soul as a garden. He said, you know, the difference between a garden and wilderness is that someone goes in and he cares and he, he intentionally takes care of the garden. He prunes the flowers and he takes care of the bushes and he mows the grass and he looks for weeds and he pulls the weeds out and then when weeds grow again, he, he's constantly going back and a good gardener is out there every day. They're always out at their garden. They're always taking care of it. They're always spotting what's out of place and what shouldn't be there. Walking in the Spirit means maintaining your soul. It means taking the time to reflect and ask, where is this just growing into wilderness? Where is there not order and beauty and fruit of Jesus in my life? The great Puritan theologian John Owen describes this this way. He says, and this will come up behind me, how can we possibly believe the promises concerning heaven, immortality, and glory when we, don't, when we do not believe the promises concerning our present life? How can we be trusted when we say we believe these promises but make no effort to experience them ourselves? It is just here that men deceive themselves. It's not that they do not want the gospel, privileges of joy, peace, and assurance, but they are not prepared to repent of their evil attitudes and careless lifestyles. But without the diligent exercise of the grace of obedience, we shall never enjoy the graces of joy, peace, and assurance. Where do we begin? How do you form these types of habits? A pastor who I enjoy listening to, he was friends with Dallas Willard, who was another great writer and pastor. Dallas Willard and him had a conversation one day, and this pastor said, what do I have to do to achieve spiritual maturity? Dallas, tell me, after years of ministry, what do I need to do to achieve spiritual maturity? Dallas Willard thought for a moment, and then he said, the most important thing you can do for your spiritual health is to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. The pastor wrote it down, he thought for a moment, he said, okay, what else? Dallas Willard shook his head and said, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. We need to slow down. We rush through everything. Culture wants you to rush through everything, and it wants you to rush through your faith. we got to stop. we got to examine our soul, reflect. We need to get out our journal and write down, where am, I, 
where are, where, are, where are weeds in my faith? Write it down. Put a name to it. Label it. Know where the flesh is popping up. It's there. You are not there yet. That happens after death. That happens once we get to Jesus. Then you've arrived. Until then, it's always there. We've got to ruthlessly eliminate hurry in our life and look at Jesus as our first love. We need to stop and dig our roots into him and let him conquer our souls and begin to actually hear him through all the chaos and the hurry of life. Take a deep breath and just stop and hear him. Have you ever stopped and listened? In your prayer life, do you sit in a quiet room with no distractions and just stop and listen? And you say, God, you get five minutes. Speak. Just five. I'm going to sit here silently and wait for you. You know how to discipline yourself in silence? I challenge you, go home and try that. If you can make it more than 30 seconds on your first try, you're doing better than most. It's hard to sit and be patient with Jesus, but there is no other way. We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our life. And then the world will see the fruit of the Spirit in your life.